Let's pray one more time. Lord Almighty, we come before you and we come before your word. We are humbled and we ask that you would be glorified by putting your word before us and causing us to hear it and be shaped by it so that we will give you the glory, we will give you the praise by trusting it and by shaping our lives accordingly because that indeed is how you would have us to live. Help us, Jesus, tonight to, by removing from us the distractions, by forgiving us of our sins so that we can hear and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. After 35 years of opposition by PETA, Ringling Brothers Circus announced that they are suspending their elephant acts. The circus owns a giant refuge in Florida, and the 15 remaining working elephants will join their 40 brethren over the course of the next three years. But PETA, sometimes known as the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, and sometimes known as People Eating Tasty Animals, has been far less successful in eliminating the elephants in our rooms. The elephant is in the room every time we refuse to acknowledge our glaring sin, the sin in our hearts, and choose instead to blame someone else or to shine the spotlight on someone else's issues. And tonight, we are going to see how the elephant was let into the room at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12. Because instead of recognizing what was staring them in the face, the Pharisees preferred to accuse Jesus. And you and I are going to tonight learn to avoid their error when we ask the Lord for 2020 heart vision. So, in an effort to help us to see the elephants that are in our hearts and see the overall flow of this section in Matthew, let's pause to remind ourselves about several facts about Matthew's gospel. And the first is that Matthew is pretty well divided into five sections. There's the beginning and the end, and there's these five sections, which include beginning with a a sermon, and he gives these five sermons, and each of them are followed by narratives or a history of what Jesus did. In chapter 10, we came to Jesus' second sermon, and then in chapters 11 and 12, which we're finishing tonight, we have a history of what he did and said. So the big idea we noticed several years ago, several weeks ago, excuse me, uh, in Matthew 10, was the command, fear not, but preach the kingdom. That was the message. We learned not to be afraid of any human or demonic opposition, but to teach that the power of God to accomplish his will is available to every single one of his believers. Chapter 11 and 12 then demonstrate God's power that is available to us and to teach us how we can appropriate it. We learn, for example, in chapter 11, 1 to 19, that God loves a desperate 
soul. When you and I are desperate for God and not for all the trinkets that we gather around ourselves, God will be found by us. He will come through for us. Then we found in 1120 to 2030, we found that we must rest in Christ's authority. Because Christ has absolute authority over believers and unbelievers alike, you and I can reject despair. We don't have to despair in this world. Though everything is collapsing around us, we have the God who is in absolute authority. Then staying with this theme of rest and resting in Christ's authority, Matthew relates the story in chapter 12, 1 to 14. And in there, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And so immediately he gets hit by opposition. The end of that opposition we're going to read about tonight. And our big idea of that passage was rest by remembering rightly. This was all about the Sabbath and how Christians can and ought to incorporate the ideas about the Sabbath into our lives. The next one, in Matthew 12, 15 to 21, we saw how Christ fulfills several Old Testament prophecies. And we find that him teaching this powerful biblical truth, and that is the emptied self satisfies better than the esteemed self. The Pharisees replied to this teaching by attacking hard. And last week we saw in 12, to 37, we need to fill our hearts and our minds with good so that we can steel ourselves against the relentless attack of those who hate Jesus and those who love him. And in tonight's passage, we will conclude this narrative portion and we'll find that Jesus' honeymoon, so to speak, is over. He is going to now face sustained opposition by the rulers of the Jewish religious elite and that ultimately will lead to the cross. Next week... I will preach in the morning, and so we will have a guest preacher Sunday night, which I encourage you to come. We're going to have a great time. I won't tell you what he's going to preach on, but it's going to be good. And then the following week, Lord willing, we will uh, take a, a week off of Matthew, and we'll prepare our hearts for Easter. And we will have no Sunday evening service on Easter Sunday. But returning from Easter... We will pause from Matthew and I will finally come good on the promise I made several of you in this room to preach on the end times. I know. I don't know why I'm doing this to myself. But several of you asked me and I said, okay, when my doctorate's done, then we'll dive into that. So we're going to do that starting right after Easter. And so please do pray for myself and pray for you as we go into that. And ask as we get there for 2020 heart vision. So let's look at our passage tonight. We'll start in Matthew chapter 12 verse 38. Matthew writes, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. 
But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus declares the Pharisees evil and adulterous because they're asking for a sign. They're daring Jesus to come up with something that can convince them. Come on, Jesus, prove yourself. But on face value, you and I might reasonably ask what's wrong with asking for a sign. Why not have Jesus prove himself? And the first answer to that, the first and most obvious reason is you have to ask the question in response, what is going to be enough? Just a few verses earlier, the Pharisees saw a blind man healed and the power of a demon abolished, broken. So if they're witnessing this kind of thing, what sign could be enough? Obviously, they're asking from a heart that doesn't really want to be convinced. And secondly, what we need to recognize is that one day, every single person will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they will realize that the proof you needed to believe in this life was given to you. Because you will realize that your ability or inability to see Jesus was a moral issue, not an intellectual one. Now let me pause there for a moment because I just spent four years getting a doctorate in this subject and I understand there are legitimate questions. And when your friends ask you legitimate questions, answer them. Tell them about your relationship with Jesus. Give them hope that there can be a changed life. And if you don't know the answer to their specific question, you do one thing. I don't know. Let me, look, let me look that up for you. Let me find out. And call me up. I don't have all the answers, but we'll sit down. We'll talk about it. I'll give you some resources to read, and you can go back and respond reasonably. But this is what I found. When I was on campus at Cal State University San Bernardino every week, and we were witnessing to people, and they would come up with some crazy question, and I would go back, and I would research it, and we'd go back and talk to them. Inevitably, the point wasn't intellectual. The point was moral. The kid I was talking to wanted to keep sleeping with his girlfriend, so he wanted to throw some intellectual question out. And so, remember that if somebody is just throwing questions at you, the issue is not intellectual, the issue is moral. Now, again, that's not to say there aren't good questions, but there are good answers for that, those questions as well. Come to me and we'll talk. Now, I need to address another thing, because the Pharisees, in saying, I want a sign from you, are really saying... They want proof. So what is the difference between evidence and proof? Proof in this world is hard to come by. If you think about it, there's proofs in geometry and very few other things. How many of you remember 
10th grade geometry and lists of proofs. Okay, some of you guys are math geniuses. For the most part in this life, what you get is evidence and reason. And let's face it, you can be skeptical about anything. But you can't live on being skeptical. You must and do every day take things on faith. For example, the brakes on your car. The weather report on the news. Or for that matter, the report from Syria. You take for granted the purity of your water and the purity of your spouse's heart. But God's evidence that he is, is much better. God has chosen to give us lots of evidence that he is. Deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, is a great evidence of his existence. Our conscience is a great evidence of God's existence. The continued existence of the Bible and the people of Israel in spite of centuries of determined attempts to eliminate them, is an evidence that God is. Now notice, I'm saying these are evidences. They are not proofs. Now as far as I'm concerned, the fact that the people of Israel still exist and the fact that the Bible still exists... That, that counts pretty high in my book. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm admitting my bias by saying that. But it's not proof. Because you and I remain free to reject the evidence. Nobody's arm is twisted by God. This was one of our main points in Matthew eleven twenty to 30. You don't have to. To believe, you can, for the time being, choose not to have ears that hear. And at the same time, we recognize that it is God who saves. It is God who reaches down and pulls us out of the flame. It is God who gives our dead souls life so that we can accept the evidence for his existence. You and I don't have to claim that we have proof. We have evidence because Jesus claims here in verse 39 that we have enough. And he, is, and, and he has allowed us to choose and very often to remain stubborn. So, in light of the stubbornness, Jesus tells his accusers that he will give them a sign. And what is that sign? Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah died. And he rose again. Now, obviously, he didn't literally die. But he metaphorically died by going in that, sh that great fish. By the way, could you imagine that? Could you imagine 
being in the gut of this fish, uh, if you don't have kids or, or they came along too late after VeggieTales, you need to watch the VeggieTales about Jonah. Get it on Netflix or talk to somebody who gets it. It is really funny. Sorry. Back to preaching. Likewise, Christians die when we go under the waters of baptism and we rise again. Now these are signs. These are demonstrations. They, they are metaphors of reality. And the reality in this case is that Christ literally, physically died. And he literally, physically rose from the grave. Amen. Thank you. And if Nineveh and 21st century pagans like us can consider these realities and repent, then the 1st century Jews who witnessed Christ's miracles ought to have recognized also that something greater than Jonah is here. Furthermore, Jesus continues his analogy in verse 42 where he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. We go back and you read the story in 1 Kings chapter 10, and the queen of, of Sheba marched a whole retinue all the way up to Jerusalem to meet the wisest, merely human man who ever lived. And as wise as Solomon was, until of course he married a bunch of ladies. Never mind, we won't go there. <laughs> Jesus is far wiser. And the implication is the queen would have traveled farther to get to the wisdom of Jesus. And the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba will condemn the generation that crucified the Lord of glory because like the first century Jews and like the 21st century pagans, they vaguely saw the glory of God through his imperfect messengers, Jonah and Solomon, and responded they repented by turning from their normal activities and looking and seeing the glory of God. And they said, I want that. And thus, those who knowingly reject Jesus in the first or 21st centuries will be contemptible. Because they rejected a much more glorious light than Solomon and Jonah. Ask for 2020 heart vision. So that you don't fall into the same contemptible trap that they did. Make no mistake, hell is populated by the contemptible who are so in part because they thought too much of themselves and they refused to recognize the elephant in their heart. Do you realize that sometimes you and I let elephants in our hearts? It begins, as all things do, relatively small, apparently, or at least to ourselves, 
insignificant. A pet sin that's really not as bad as her pet sin. Or a willfulness that's not nearly as bad as that guy over there's. A willingness to excuse ourselves from daily time with Jesus. And this pet sin grows until it is a 12 foot tall African elephant. And that sin becomes adultery. Becomes grand larceny. It becomes the heart in our chests that swallow the camel all the while rejecting the fly of inconvenience that Jesus' demands put on us. We must put that elephant down. And we do it by asking God to give us a 2020 heart vision so that we can see the elephant for what it is and get it out. Repent of it and accept the cleansing, forgiveness, and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because, make no mistake, you will kill no elephant in your heart without recognizing that the Lord accepts you as you are when you turn and you trust his promises for you in Christ. Now, Jesus in Matthew 12 tacks in a different direction to arrive at the same port. And this port that he's seeking to arrive at is convincing the Pharisees and 21st century Santa Marians to repent. We see this in verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation. Now Jesus here reflects back on the healing at the beginning of chapter 12 in 12 verse 22 where if you remember last week Jesus or Matthew in very terse, very succinct words says that Jesus cast out a demon. Now remember, this is important. Every passage in the Bible always only has one meaning. Now it has many interpretations. And we may not exactly know what that one meaning is, but in this case I think we do. It seems pretty clear that what Jesus is saying here is that this generation, the one that crucified him, is like a man who had a demon cast out of him, but then that man did not repent and turn to God. And what will happen? Because he doesn't submit to the Lord, He will be reoccupied by even worse demons and be in an even worse state. Those who saw the miracles of Jesus and chose to reject him were going to be in a worse position than if they had never seen him. 
This generation had an opportunity because the fullness of time had finally come. But they lost it. They rejected that opportunity. Rather than rejoicing in their reprieve, they trusted in moralism as opposed to God. Now let us not lose sight here of the fact that this generation pictured by Jesus includes all the people up until this very day. Today, right now, where you are sitting. Jesus made it clear that the generation that crucified him is every generation that willfully rejects him in favor of their own self-centered projects that seeks to push Jesus away until they cannot push him away anymore because he has returned. They have set up an elephant in front of their eyes so they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That is why you and me need to ask our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for 2020 heart vision. Oh my friends, listen, I'm talking to us here right now. Don't lose your opportunity. Some of you may have been coming to church for 40 years, longer than I've been alive. And though your quote-unquote house has been put in order, many have lived very moral lives. There are some in that condition who are set up for a great, indeed infinite loss because that person has never gotten past the moralism of having a clean house, of looking good to everyone else. They've never left that. Aren't I so great for teaching Sunday school or coming to church every Sunday in favor of having a relationship with Jesus Christ? Ask the Lord to open your heart. Beg him to give you 2020 vision so that you can see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And put that elephant down once and for all. Now there's some more. There's some more people in this room. Maybe you're not the pretend Christian that's been coming to church forever. But you have been coming to church for a long time. And little habits sneak in under the door. And, you know, it's really not that big a deal. But once inside, they grow. And don't allow yourself to lie to yourself that your sin cannot be found out and hated, like the psalmist says. But instead, turn to Jesus Admit to Jesus, Lord, I am a sinner. Show me where you want me to repent. My friends, I have found whenever I have sincerely prayed that prayer, the Lord has always in the next day or so revealed it to me because I need to repent. I need to kill that elephant. Ask the Lord for 2020 heart vision. One more time, Jesus shifts in his approach so that we cannot miss his main point, and that is to repent. Verse 46, 
While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my brother, mother, and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Matthew ties a neat little bow on chapters 11 and 12 as the Holy Spirit instructs him to include this very strange episode from Jesus' life. Apparently, Jesus' family is concerned that he's going crazy. And so they want to, you know, bring him in so that he doesn't dishonor the quote-unquote family name. But Jesus makes clear, as Craig Blomberg puts it, human kinship does not take priority over spiritual kinship. Physical descent and relation does not take precedence over becoming a member of Christ's family by being a disciple of Christ. By submitting to the Lord to come in to your house and kill that elephant that's in there for you. All these verses are is an invitation to discipleship. Jesus has been defending himself against the attack of the Pharisees. But if you notice, Jesus does not condemn these individuals in these two chapters. He's condemning their ideas. He's condemning the idols in their hearts. And these idols that are set up in their hearts are what is condemning the individuals who hold them. Jesus, as we find out in Matthew, is willing to eat dinner with the Pharisees. Jesus is willing to disciple Pharisees. And we see examples of that. Jesus is even willing, believe it or not, to eat with and disciple 21st century Santa Marians as well. And those who wish to become followers of Jesus, be they Pharisees or lowly shepherds, be they Muslim or Hindi or Americans, all are welcome. And all of us find the ground level at the cross. So my friends, ask the Lord. Ask him to open your eyes and that he would open the eyes of the hearts that are around you as you live according to the grace of God. Ask Jesus for 2020 heart vision. So how do we get this? How, how do we live this kind of 2020 heart vision? We ask for it and receive this 2020 heart vision by responding to what we already know of God and his work on the earth. Unlike the Pharisees who demanded a sign they were unwilling to respond to, you and I must open our eyes and trust in the dark what the Lord has shown us in the light. Especially every person in this room. We have volumes of information about the Lord. Let us begin or let us continue living according to it. The light that he has shown us. We ask for and receive this 2020 heart vision by taking the opportunity that God has given us through the multitude of graces that God has just poured out on us. This is our health. 
This is all of our conveniences that we're not washing clothes with a wringer anymore, but we can throw it in a laundry machine. We have so many opportunities. Let us take advantage of them, not taking them for granted, but to live more for the Lord. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your heart to guiding you. Trust his promises and live as if they are true and you will be doing this. Ask for and receive this 2020 heart vision by doing what we know God wants us to do. And when you do, you will be Jesus' mother and sisters and brothers. And all of this means, all of this happens trusting his promises, relying on the grace and the mercy of God so that we can find him faithful. Let us do this for our joy, for his glory, and for the growth of his kingdom. Lord Almighty, bless us as we turn to you because we cannot do this of our own, but Lord, we trust that you will meet us where we are. And Lord, we trust that you will give us the grace that we need to see with 2020 vision in our hearts what you have laid out before us. Glorify your name and help us to glorify you in, before others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.